Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. Researchers estimate that more than 2 million Americans need help with an opioid addiction, and only about 25% will actually get it. This can all seem so very daunting, but the reality is we are getting better at treating substance abuse disorders. And for one thing, we have better medicines that are keeping people alive, and providers are changing how they approach treatment of the disease, now recognizing that stability, not abstinence, is essential to sobriety. My guest, uh, Mark DeCluid, is a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and he's among a relatively small number of addiction treatment providers in Louisiana who have embraced uh, this more compassionate approach. His clinic, Access Behavioral Health, uh, meets opioid addiction patients where they are. And crucially, his is one of the few operations that makes this treatment readily available to people insured by Medicaid. Mark, welcome to Out to Lunch. Oh, thanks, Christian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, of course, the changes in how we treat opioid use disorders and, and other chronic illnesses come from a better understanding of how they happen in the first place. Broadly speaking, health researchers have come to understand that our health is not just a function of our physical well-being. Uh, it also is a function of where we live, where we come from, what we do, what our circumstances are. And these things have immense influence on our likelihood of getting sick and perhaps you know, more to the point, recovering. Left unaccounted for, these social determinants of health can frustrate the treatment process and lead to repeat hospital visits, which drives up the cost of health care for everyone while no one seems to get healthy. What good is a good drug if the nearest pharmacy is 25 miles away, you live alone, and you don't have a car? My next guest, Holly Howitt, has a nonprofit that tries to address these external factors that can complicate treatment. Beacon Community Connections is a simple innovation, the telephone. Her community care navigators connect with, pe- with patients that way after they are discharged from the hospital to make sure they have what they need to get the best shot at staying healthy. Holly, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hi, thanks for having me, Christian. So, uh, Mark, I've tried to boil down the problem that you work on to fit the scope of the show here, but I, I want to make sort of one key point to help guide our discussion. And your, your basic approach is that you prescribe a drug called buprenorphine that works sort of like methadone, right? And, and this drug, buprenorphine, has been around long enough that we have some good data on it, and, and it seems to be working. Um, but a lot of providers only take cash, and it can be really expensive, like $300 a visit. Um, but Access, your clinics, uh, take Medicaid, uh, which has kind of been reported before, doesn't necessarily pay providers particularly well. Um, but I understand this is a mission-driven thing for you, but at some level you have to stay afloat. So I'm curious just to start. I mean, how does this actually make business sense for you? Like to, to be able to, to put this treatment into the world in a way um, that keeps access going? Uh, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question, Christian. And I think it, in order to answer it, it requires me to be a bit cynical, I think. Um, but uh, the reimbursement rates that I think Medicaid provides, I think for the specific treatment of providing that medication management visits um, is more than enough, right, to um, 
to manage um, that, that level of care. Part of the thing, the broader challenge, right, is that initially when this was, was, was you know, this medication came about, um, it was required to put together psychotherapy and the medication management, one and the other, right, to keep them together. And I think doing both of those in the context of a bundled payment that the system provided, it just wasn't present, right? And so how do you get somebody to do A and B? Um, well, fortunately, probably about five, four or five years ago, um, the feds kind of watered down that and we didn't need to offer that therapy. It's not required. And, you know, data is suggesting now that you know, the therapy doesn't necessarily do much to keep people from overdosing, right? There is a component that it does increase their ability or their likelihood of, you know, engaging in the community and the system and kind of re-understanding who they are in their own community. Um, but at a very base level, what we're looking to do is keep people from overdosing, keep people from having to interact with the healthcare system at the acute level, right? Um, so they can, I think, catch eventually and jump into that therapeutic component that does allow them uh, a much greater access to kind of re-enter the community that they once were part of. Um, so at that very basic level, what we're doing is we're just meeting people where they are, right? Um, somebody may come into the clinic and, you know, they may have a multitude of substance use issues, right? One of them being opiate use disorder. And, you know, while we do want to address the other two or three issues, right, whether they be other substances, we're going to also focus on the opiate use disorder, make sure that they have a medication that they can take safely, um, not relapse, have enough access to it so they can continue to try to interact in their community. Um, we find that our, success, our outcomes are better, right? We keep people in the system longer, keep people in that cycle of recovery longer so they do catch and they can hopefully maintain to get to stability. I'd like to hold on to that meeting people where they are point and kind of kick this over to Holly for a second. Because, you know, when I was kind of trying to write the script for the show and again, sort of boil down your work into something that we can fit into the radio airwaves, um, it, I was struck by a simple, like the proposition of what Beacon Community Connections actually does. And, and it seems like it's, common sense in the same way that meeting people where they are might be as a as an axiom for how to treat you know addiction right um so so you know what you guys do because you discharge from a hospital right with a disease that might or or an illness or, or recovery from an illness this right requires some sort of management long term or just some, some sort of complications of management and historically maybe we just sort of left them to do that not recognizing that wherever that wherever they land, right, might not be in the best position to manage those, um, to manage the circumstances. So, so, so you guys kind of connect them with the resources they need. Like, for example, if, if they get discharged or from Mark's care, they need access to buprenorphine, like maybe you guys can help them find the right pharmacy, that sort of thing. So when I sort of talked through this out loud with myself and I sort of realized this all just seems like it makes a lot of sense. Like, why is it that we didn't think about this until relatively recently? Like, why is it that we didn't understand that, we had to look at those sort of external factors, but but more importantly, realize that once somebody left the hospital, that there was maybe some more work to do to make sure that they didn't come back. I think that's um, that is kind of a complex question, and so, but I'll try to simplify it just to a couple of things. One, um, more and more research has been done on what health means and how health occurs, and so um, we now know that about 80% of someone's health really comes from these social determinants of health or 
I like to just say well-being factors, you know, where you live, work, and play really has an impact on um, how well you are. Um, so just, you know, uh, just recognizing that. And then I would say the second thing is healthcare is in the business of healthcare. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking at um, the patient and trying to see what diseases or what medical conditions they can manage or cure. Um, and so they weren't really in the business of social services. That was in, that's a whole separate area. And I don't think there was a lot of overlap um, until very recently um, with this recognition about social determinants of health and it becoming a big buzzword that um, we started talking about this. Um, but really in Lafayette, we've been working on this issue since 2015 when, when I started the Justice and Health Collaborative, which was bringing, first it was bringing people and the stakeholders and leaders in the justice system together with mental health or behavioral health providers and getting them to talk to each other because they a lot of times they see the same people, um, the same people that cycle through the jail tend to also cycle through um, mental health services or the emergency room, which is why eventually we brought in healthcare as well. And we've started having these conversations and Beacon really came out of these conversations. So you, I'm going to circle back on the number that you quoted. He's like 80% of you know health is tied to these social determinants. I mean, how do you even come up with that figure? I mean, how, how did the researchers actually develop or quantify that and say, well, you know, 80% of, you know, this problem seems to result from circumstances beyond just the presenting condition? Well, I think people smarter than me kind of figured this out. And I, I don't, um, I'm not familiar exactly with, with the methodology, but it was a lot of meta-analysis and data crunching on, you know, why do people return to the hospital? Um, or why do people, you know, not comply with the treatment? What's, what's happening? So, you know, just use the example, um, you are um, 65 years old and you're on Medicare and you have to have a total knee replacement. Um, you live in River Ranch. Um, you probably have a car, you probably have a house and don't have to worry about utilities. You have multiple grocery stores, potentially even within walking distance, um, low crime, you know, things like that. Um, contrast that with someone that maybe is living in um, the 70501, let's say in Macomb Vise. Um, they may be living in a house that is in disrepair. They may be worried every month about whether they'll be able to um, heat their house. There's no grocery stores now um, on that side of town. Um, and so, you know, they may or may not have a car, have to use public transportation. It's just much harder to achieve health and wellness when you have all these factors against you. Absolutely. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Holly Howitt of Beacon Community Connections and Mark DeCluitt of Access Behavioral Health. Mark, I have to assume, right, like broadly what, what Holly's talking about in terms of just like healthcare theory, I guess, I mean, it would apply to your work and the folks that come through your clinic. I mean, to, to what extent do you see, you know, these same factors or, or, or the sort of you know, umbrella term of social determinants of health coming into play? I mean, how, how does this actually affect the folks that you're trying to work with? Jump back and speak more broadly for a minute. Like, so access in my, in my training, like I, I do a lot of work in, with addiction and with, with behavioral health, right? To kind of, we work at the intersection of the two. And, you know, not surprising whenever you mentioned that 80% figure, right? That 
that number is like affecting greatly, I think, how like patients that were treating are being able to access care, just do well in general. Um, I think that hasn't been um, like, I think more better realized since, until we had COVID, right? And COVID kind of really just highlight that for a lot of people. I can tell you, you know, as we're, as I'm engaging, was have been engaging with, I think, um, some of our um, local legislators and talking about this access to care issue for the number seven back in Louisiana over the past five years, it hasn't been more, it hasn't been, it's been easier to have that conversation over the past year. People get what access to care means right now. And that doesn't just mean finding, getting in touch with your provider. It means how do you get to your local grocer or to your pharmacy, right? How do you get just the basic determinants to function, right? And yeah, you pull people out of, a, out of their home or, out of, or have them out of clothing or have them out of heat during an ice storm right now. Our, our hospital is seeing it pretty heavily. They're gonna fall off. They're gonna have an acute episode of depression. They're gonna find themselves pushed to the margin. They're immediately gonna go and look for access to a hospital system to provide them answers. And I think Holly kind of hit it on the head a minute ago when she said, you know, medicine by and large is in the business of, of treating illness, right? But we need to take a step back and I think look what is contributing to that illness. It's not always um, physical issues, right? It's just basic needs to get through the day to day. And we haven't done a really good job in this community or in this country of providing access to that um, in any capacity. Is that just a function of not having enough availability? I mean, Holly, is this in your experience something that like if we just could turn on a magical tap and put more money into people's pockets to have healthcare that that, that would fix it? Or, or is there something more complicated at play? So, you know, um, Louisiana is a Medicaid expansion state. And so we're very fortunate um, that we do have this safety net. I think that's been especially true with COVID, um, you know, as people maybe lost their jobs or something like that. They, they had this safety net where they could, you know, get, um, they still have healthcare insurance, but um, just having a Medicaid card, it doesn't guarantee you access because still many doctors and many facilities will not accept Medicaid. And so you have things like health professional shortage areas, uh, which are designated by, by the, the federal government uh, places where there's not enough providers. So Lafayette has plenty of providers, uh, but it's considered a low income health professional shortage area for both primary care and for mental health because a lot of these uh, providers don't accept Medicaid. There's a, there's a whole list of reasons on, on why I'm not trying to vilify doctors that don't do that because there's a whole bunch of reasons, you know, why you wouldn't, you have to make your business case. But the reality is, you know, having Medicaid doesn't guarantee you access to, to care. It, it doesn't, right? And, and, and I think there's always been this argument that, you know, for taking grants and just saying, instead of just giving people access to certain elements of care, why don't we just give people more money, right? And there's always this, um, this concern by the powers that be that, well, they may not know how to do with that. And I wanna say like recently, over 2020, I wanna say there was an Oxford study that um, pointed um, at that directly and they actually began giving, giving people more direct money, not just vouchers for food or vouchers for a living. They said um, it was cash and their outcomes as it relates to being able to navigate their own world and stay afloat, um, significantly greater than the, the alternative. Right, because 
people have specific needs, right? Some people are able to survive off of more than others. And I think we try to put everybody in this category and say, let's just give them these vouchers to this A or B and they'll be fine, but it's not the case, right? I think we, we do a bit too much to try to specify support when we just, the evidence is becoming more and more readily available that you know, just giving people more access to resources, i.e. funds, can help some of these situations um, that Holly's speaking to. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, there is, people have falsely stereotyped um, people that are different from themselves. So if you're white middle class, you may have no experience with poverty and you may buy into the mindset, well, people that are poor, they're just lazy, they don't wanna work, they can't, you know, they're just trying to pull something over on you. But um, in, in Louisiana, um, 51% of our neighbors um, are either living in what's called ALICE budgets or below. And ALICE stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained and Employed. They used to be called the working poor. These are people that work hard. Their company may not allow them to work full-time. So they're working two jobs um, at minimum wage or just a slightly higher. Um, and you know, so they're able to qualify for Medicaid. They're trying to make ends meet, but I mean, it's, it's tough. Um, and I think, you know, um, we need a mindset shift in recognizing that um, there are lots of poor people out there that are working hard and th they just need some support. And, you know, we should support our neighbors. So, I mean, I kind of feel like I have to uh, look, Ali, uh, you mentioned th there could be a lot of reasons, but I mean, it strikes me that like at least one piece of this equation is we have as a state expanded Medicaid. So we, we know. Theoretically, at least people have access to care. They might, you know, get Medicaid insurance through the, that expansion, but you know, they're not. The doctors aren't taking it. I mean, so how, why is it that we can't connect that dot? If if really it comes down to a function of resources, and that's a way to get resources to people, why aren't we able to do that? You're right. It's like Louisiana is a, is a, is a Medicaid expansion state, and so everybody should have access. Like, you know, back I think whenever the ACA like first um, uh, became a thing. There was a really uh, pretty simple paper that was uh, written through the Heritage Foundation that talked about um, kind of the problem by a woman named Amy Anderson, talked about the problem of giving everybody access to healthcare is that we just did not have enough providers to provide that level of access. Um, uh, one of the solutions that she came up with um, is that we, at the time, and we still do, we have these, these professionals um, called you know, nurse practitioners who have been demonstrated at the time to be able to provide a high level of care whose outcomes, at least at a primary care level, um, have been demonstrated to be equivalent to that of their physician counterparts, right? Um, I think 20 some odd states, 21 states, presently allow those providers to, in, to provide to the fullest extent they're capable of. And so those states have seen an increase in access in some rural areas, right? Louisiana, um, while we are a bit progressive in how our advanced practice nurses and nurse practitioners can practice, they are kind of restricted by this thing called a collaborative practice agreement. And so if they want to go practice in Bunky, Louisiana, or they want to go practice in, you know, um, New Iberia, they have to find a physician who will collaborate with them so they can open up a clinic. And so um, from a business perspective, it's a horrible idea for a physician who as is business centric, who has a practice maybe in New Iberia to collaborate with their competitor across the street. And so there's a problem with that model in terms of 
I think increasing access. That is one potential solution is if, if Louisiana would, you know, change legislation to allow for a provider system that is already readily available and pumping out, I think, advanced practice nurses, um, a number of which is equivalent or maybe even almost above that of physician primary care level um, in the states, and they're staying in the state versus physicians that are leaving the state, um, that may be a potential solution. But you're right, it's a problem as it relates to there's not enough clinicians who are accepting Medicaid to provide that level of service, even in an urban centered area like Louisiana, like Lafayette. And I'll also say, if you're talking about, if I can just say one thing about the, the business case. So Michael Berta, who's with um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, he um, he he could, he'll, he could talk about this uh, much more eloquently than me, but I'll try to really quickly restate it. So basically, um, Medicare is kind of like the standard rate. So hospitals kind of create their, what their um, margins around what Medicare is gonna reimburse. Um, Medicaid generally pays a lot less. And so third party payers tend to pay more. They negotiate contracts so they make more. And so businesses like hospitals and other healthcare providers try to get a mix, you know, sometimes try to get a mix so they can make sure that they're um, have, an, have enough so they can make um, money. So both of our hospital systems in Lafayette are not for profits, which means you know, they're not trying to make a bunch of money. Um, Lafayette General for years, um, I think they operated trying on a 3% margin. Um, you know, trying to balance that is very tricky. So, I mean, look, we've, we've obviously focused on a deeply complicated problem, you know, and, uh, it, that, that I don't expect that we will unpack all the possible solutions in 30 minutes, but, but both of you guys, you know, are offering some manner of response. And so, Holly, of course, I, I'd be remiss not to talk a little bit more about Beacon's approach, right? Which has, in some ways, if you want to look at this through a business lens, like, you know, found a way to remove, uh, to work on sort of the demand side of this, right? To look and say, all right, well, how do we reduce the, the degree to which we tax the resources that we that we do have in terms of like the number of people that are going to the hospital and the time that's spent, and the, the cost of providing healthcare. I mean, so let me ask you this. I mean, how does that actually work for, for you financially? You guys are a nonprofit, so I presume some kind of like grant funding, but like, you know, to some extent, if this is going to be proposed as a larger solution or idea of solutions, you know, do you have a sense of how this works as a model in a way that becomes scalable? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So we started off with the Blue Cross Blue Shield grant, um, partnered with Lafayette General. And at that time, um, Beacon was incubating under 232 Help. And um, we just had an idea. We, we replicated a model that was in San Diego um, and wanted to see how it would work here. And it really just worked beyond our wildest dreams. And we knew very, very early on that we were having, making significant impacts um, on um, healthcare. Healthcare has something called a triple aim, you know, patient satisfaction, um, improved health and cost savings. And we were able to meet that triple aim. Um, and so Lafayette General recognizing that um, we now have a contract with them. We've had contract with them for over two years now. Um, same thing with Lords. We're, we're in the, our last year of a grant with them. They've already are asking for proposals on so they can start getting the contracting process going. So, you know, I think it takes a little bit of money up front um, for, for the investment to kind of see, um, you know, is this going to work for our facilities? And once it does, you know, everybody's bought in. Um, we did a... Um, 
a very simple uh, financial analysis of our impact um, during our pilot with Lafayette General. And we saved uh, at a minimum um, $2 million on 400 clients and maybe as much as $12 million through cost avoidance. That means people not going back to the ER, people not, um, you know, um, having more expensive um, um, work or having their, their disease progress. Hmm. It, it, Mark, I mean, to, to kind of put it back in, in your terms, I mean, your approach again, similarly novel, at least in the state of Louisiana. I mean, how are you seeing that this is working and can be scalable, let's say, as as a solution to this you know, pretty sticky problem? So um, let me kind of walk back something. So earlier, whenever we were chatting, you had asked about like, how are we able to kind of, to kind of maintain them when others aren't? So in Louisiana, you know, nurse practitioners that have a specialty, a psychiatric specialty, do get reimbursed more than those that have a primary care specialty. Um, and so there is an element of, you know, um, increased reimbursement that we do receive when compared to our primary care counterparts in the state. Um, uh, access, we have a, um, a COO who is a family nurse practitioner who was probably about two years before us, um, she had her a primary care clinic in Lafayette and was the only person doing this. And she was doing it um, with the thinnest of margins, doing it by herself, doing all these prior authorizations. And um, her name is Cynthia Beverly. And she's just a, a wonderful person and a phenomenal clinician. And um, dedication to that population is just tremendous. And bringing her into access, kind of helping point out some of ways in which we could, I think, more streamline the approach more is, um, has been beneficial. However, Holly hit on something that is required, and that's finding partners in the community um, to assist in um, whether it's support from a therapeutic component, whether it's support for higher level of care. Um, it requires, Access does a really good job in the other community that we operate in, in Alexandria, of interacting and partnering up with um, entities that have higher levels of care. So whenever we can, or we need to tee up, we can, but we're always in communication with those entities. So the amount of time people are spending in those levels of care can kind of somewhat decrease and the cost burden on the system isn't so much because the need is so great. Continuity of communication is pretty intense in terms of making sure that we're keeping um, one, the numbers down, but two, we're continuing to provide access. Um, this hasn't been, I think, more readily needed than during COVID, right? Whenever all of a sudden regulations were just killed left and right to continue to provide access um, um, to buprenorphine. I mean, we were essentially at one point um, and still can to this day because of the emergency order, like initiating people um, or getting, keeping people on their medication via phone call, right? Just because the alternative is so much dire. So. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like the key point here, you know, takeaway from 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 this is like there is a degree or there there is a reality where meeting people where they are, providing access, like actually making these efforts um, can make business sense, and and that can be valuable, it, it you know, going forward in terms of how we approach these problems holistically and comprehensively. And look, obviously, really thrilled to see you guys both. You know, really coming up with ways of dealing with this or introducing ways that maybe have come from other communities to to Acadiana and broadly to the state of Louisiana. So, you know, Holly and Mark, uh, you know, thanks so much for coming on the show um, and I'm wishing you both the best. So thanks again for coming on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Holly Howitt of Beacon Community Connections and Mark DeCluitt of Access Behavioral Health. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Holly and Mark and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast, which you can find anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, it's acadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur, and you can find more of her work at LaFleurPhoto.com. One of these days, we'll get back to hosting Out to Lunch Acadiana in person, maybe over a Bloody Mary at the French Press in breezy downtown Lafayette. Until then, you can go to the French Press yourself for breakfast or lunch or order it for delivery. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Molly Richard and Jan Risher. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Christian Mater. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. And to find out more of what matters in Lafayette, head to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time around our virtual lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.